This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. A one, a two, a three. What? That was the best one we've ever done. (laughs) Seriously. Welcome. And welcome to, to my, my favorite, favorite murder. murder. <laughs> I was harmonizing with you. Oh, okay. The professional podcast for professional <laughs> people in the professional world. Starring Georgia Hardstark. Yeah. Man, when I was a kid, I thought I'd be walking around in a fucking lady suit with fucking shoulder pads and a briefcase being like a professional working woman. That was like my dream. Did you have um, white Reebok high tops on Ooh, to, yeah. to walk to work in? With my pumps in my bag? Hell yeah. 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 Maybe I just watched Working Girl one too many times. I mean, it's a great film. It is a great film. Nine to five. Again, Sigourney Weaver just hitting threes all through the 80s. You can't. <laughs> Everything she did. Is three good? Don't you want a five or ten? Well, hitting threes is from basketball. <laughs> oh, got it, got it, got it. That's why you did the layup movement. That's right. <laughs> I was I was throwing out from a got from it. The outside outside lane. I don't actually follow basketball. I respect it. Mm. Should we start um, over? But <laughs> <laughs> No, but you should introduce me since oh. I introduced you. Oh, you did? Oh, that's Karen Kilgareth. <laughs> I didn't know you did. Oh, Thank you. The basketball genius. (laughs) Huge basketball nerd over here. Um, I did see, and you did too, um, James Harden, who's from the Houston Rockets. Remember the guy, he had a beard Mm -hmm. and we saw him at the Daily Grill in the bar. Oh, yeah. It was like three, two years ago. In Burbank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the weirdest place in the the least um, celebrity uh, yeah, it's next to the Burbank place. airport, which is just it's, like <laughs> not it's fancy commuter commuter central, <laughs> and then it, like the middle of the day in a fucking Daily Grill, which is like weird and awkward. Yeah, he had a great outfit on though. Yeah, I mean it was cool, and that's when I that was when I like to do the thing where I'm not a fan of celebrities or stars or athletes or whatever <laughs> until I see them in real life, and oh. then I begin to follow their careers. Then I'm like. Well, you came into my life. Right. Therefore, now, we're now I care about yours. Now I yeah. care about you because we're friends, because we've seen each other in real life. I get that. Yeah. yeah. That's that's tight. That's Thank good. you. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> What's going on with you? Um, let's see. Well, the family came down to escape. Did I already talk about this? Yeah. To escape the, all the smoke in Northern California. Yeah. So that was actually nice because I had real people in my house and... and you know, interaction and like eye contact and all those things that like give you uh what either dopamine hits or serotonin yeah. pumps or uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Dopamine. That was nice. Yeah. Eye to eye contact. There's no, there's no substitution for it. Yeah. I mean, I 
It's like you do it with dogs, but there's, you know, they're just using you for food. Yeah. They're like, wait, are you going to, are you about to feed me? Is that what you're staring at me? Um, and I always love it when my dad comes down because we fight really loud because mm-hmm. he's hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. So it always makes it sound like we're really mad at each other, but it's just that you're trying to get like a simple point across <laughs> as loudly as you can. You know that my dad came over. So I, we hung out with you and your family and your dad because your dad loves my husband. Yes. And so then deeply my, in love. <laughs> I saw my dad on Sunday and I, and I told him that what we did. And I was like, cause Karen's dad, you know, loves Vince and loves just talking to it, you know, a dude. And, and my dad goes, well, I like him for other reasons. Like he got jealous. I <laughs> <laughs> was like, well, well, I love Vince too. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, Marty. Sorry, he got Marty. Jealous of Jim's relationship with <laughs> Vince. I'm not just using Vince for guy stuff. I like him yeah. as a person. He's my he's my actual son-in-law. So yeah, I yeah. love him much closer, yeah. much closer. Right. Um, and then let's... my dad pop, pops up from behind a bush and tries to <laughs> punch Marty in the face. What? He's like talks about sports and stuff because <laughs> my dad can't really do that. Sorry, dad. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, my dad wants a stay sexy mask, by the way. Oh, he should have one. One of our stay sexy masks. Which, yeah. by the way, my God, this is a good segue, right? Yeah, it is. is it? Yeah, you, you've really nailed this one. <laughs> He's, uh, Even I didn't see it coming and I knew it was coming. <laughs> it's all true, though. I'm not making shit up. Uh, so we have masks now, face masks that say stay sexy on them. And 100% of the proceeds are going to feedingamerica.org to help feed hungry people in America. And they came out last week. We announced it. And you guys have already raised... 15,000 freaking... I thought that was a typo when I saw it. $15,000. For feedingamerica.org. Yes. What amazing. Beautiful thing. Thank you guys so much. Good job. Good job. Good job, everybody. So you can still go to the merch store at myfavoritemurder.com and get yourself one. And while you're there... Well, the other announcement we wanted to make is... Um, so everyone knows that we can't, we have those logo pins that are little enamel pins with our logo on them. And we use those. You can buy them and they go... The money goes toward different charities that we choose. And this last one, um, we put up for the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. It's called BEAM. And um, for this logo pin fundraiser you guys raised twenty thousand dollars for beam amazing yep we sent that check off thank you so much for everybody uh that supported that one i mean you guys are uh, thank you so much for using your money for such um awesome stuff like this because you're for really you're really doing stuff totally it's very cool and then we also have a new shirt design that is so cool karen like you kind of you were the leader on this design and you love it, right? <laughs> I, well, yes, I love it. I love the design of it, but then the message is so timely. It is. It, <laughs> like everyone I, even I tell that we're, I was showing my sister and she's like, oh, that's good. Yeah. I was like, yeah. So it's, this is terrible. Keep going. Yeah. Which is a thing we say about the murder. This is terrible. Keep going. But it's also about this time we're in. This is fucking terrible, but keep going. And it's, it's just fucking terrible. really cool design. I love it. They're up for pre-order now. So if you want one, go on um, uh, myfavoritemurder.com, go to the store, and uh, they'll ship in three weeks. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, have you been watching anything lately? Well, I watched... any. No. Uh, the Vow is my... Oh, my God. Obsession. Obsession. 
What a great... Okay, I'm angry that I can't binge it. Every time it ends, I get mad. It's so frustrating. But the, it's so incredible that one of the people that it happened to was also a filmmaker and a documentarian. Totally. So he... Because I was sitting there going, are they doing reenactments? What is this? And he it's had a real time. All conversations Crazy. that he was having with If you people. don't know, we're talking about The Vow on mm-hmm. HBO, and it's about the Nexium cult that yeah. like that turned into this sex cult. And this whole time, this documentary filmmaker, the guy who made What the Bleep Do We Know, which I totally yes. forgot about, too. That was like yeah. such a sensation, was there as they are figuring out it's a cult. And so it's all documented. His wife, it, ugh, it's so amazing. And, and it's cool because when she first starts talking about it, it's like she, you know, this is kind of taking over her life. Mm-hmm. And part of like, I think we talked about this last time, but you get it because part of what this whole program is, it starts out as like, if you're a business person that wants to get better results in your business or right. whatever. And then, but then it's like, but then you have to free yourself up in these ways and you see how it's, it's such a slow yeah. and very like impactful lead in where it's like, but you're bettering yourself as a person totally. and you're challenging yourself and you're, um, and you're doing something you're, that no one's ever done before. This is radical. And of course your family's not interested in it because they're still stuck in their ego. Go and and then I get it too. Where it's like you've spent two years and thousands of dollars in this program, and they tell and you're expecting something, and then they say, "Well, it's going to be another year. You're not just going to quit it. You're going to keep you. You've right. already invested so much. You just keep going and going, and suddenly, well, and also you're not going to quit it because they tell you the reason you want to quit it is because right. you have these negative impulses that you need to control and you need to stop wanting to be comfortable all the time. Right. Like the things that they start setting up are these things that are basically making their there's no exit. Yeah. There's no exit because if you exit, that is actually you're playing right into the storyline. Yeah. Here's how you're a failure. And then the sleep deprivation part, which is part of a cult where you're like, what do they, what do they mean? You're just running around and it's like, no, you, you need to be a busy functioning person. So you only sleep from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. And like you're so you're that's like six hours. Most people are fine with that. Except <laughs> but I think it's me. shorter because there yeah. was that one night where it was like the first midnight woman volleyball, leaves, midnight volleyball. Anytime he has a conversation with someone. They go walking around at 1 30 in the morning. And she, the wife that leaves first, looks it up and looks up what mind control. And it's just step after step of exactly how mind control works. Totally. It's just like, it, it's so fascinating the way he tries to mark when he calls. I mean, these are all spoilers. I guess we should have said yeah. that way at the beginning. Well, I think we're. We're known it's a for fucking it. Cult. These are all. It's it. <laughs> it's just the fact that you can hear the rationalization on the phone, uh-huh. so you actually know how this happens real time. Yeah. Why it's so believable. Why people can't process it because it's like, no, it's this guy, my good friend. Yeah. He's not friends with anybody. He's brilliant, right? And he's this brilliant person who's been able to figure stuff out. And he's a, an incredible speaker. He's an incredible. Uh, he's very convincing, the leader, the cult leader. Right. Although I have to say, if you did, weren't told multiple times, as they seem to be in this group, mm. that he had the highest IQ in the world. Right. I don't know if he's the most compelling speaker I've ever seen. I don't know if it, there's a lot of there there. Right. A lot that, of circles. A lot of circles. The glaze of mm. like, but he's the smartest person in the world. Yeah. People fucking, they love IQ shit. And then they want like, those people to like them and think they're smart. 
Right. Because then that must, that's such a validation yeah. where it's just like, yeah, but what if he's lying about being right. the smartest person in the world? Right. When he sat down, remember when he's like, oh, I used to be this concert pianist as a child yes. and a savant and all that. He sits down and starts playing like basically a super slowed down version of Heart and Soul, where it's just like, <laughs> I used to play this on the piano when it's I was so junior high, like first chair level <laughs> fucking piano. And he looks like John Tesh and his fucking, <laughs> if, if he didn't have that hair, that beautiful manly mane do you think i don't know it's like something about it he gets away with a lot more he gets away with so much what his volleyball outfit is ludicrous. oh my the, man i don't ever want to see a guy outside of the house in fucking sports shorts vi- no. uh, nylon sports shorts no he he wore his knee pads around like before <laughs> the game i mean there's some nerd stuff happening that's, absolutely i i am so grateful that there's so much visual there's so yeah. much like actual footage because Those, like videos they make that are like to show people who are thinking about coming in the like joyous running through the field video it's so culty i love it yes and there's so many actor types in there exactly. there's that actor yeah. energy that reminds me of every fucking acting class i've ever taken and hated where i'm like yeah i wanted to learn how to act yeah. i'm not here to like I, I can't even explain it it's kind of like a cute context it's, you know it's what I mean? join it's like, the, oh my god it's join the call the acting thing where you almost feel like you you are you have to join join us be one of us yeah. You can't be yeah. a cynical fucking asshole. No, you can't be like a arms crossed. I'm not I'm not sure about this. Right. The whole thing is like surrender or whatever, which is like, <laughs> that's fine to a point. But if you're not into like working with groups, which I'm fucking not, leave me alone. Yeah. And you're not going to. You're not you're gonna not like gonna it. like this cult nexium. <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to. You're not going to want to join this cult. Um, oh, I have a correct a correction ish correction from last week. So, okay. okay, so remember I was talking about fight, flight, f- fucking freeze, freeze or fawn. Mm-hmm. And I was saying how I fawn a lot and I was talking a lot of shit on it because I like to talk shit on myself and I'm very, and I, you know, I can't, I can't possibly be nice to myself and gentle. So this person named Grody Marshmallow wrote <laughs> to, and said to me, I want to offer a gentle challenge to the description of the PTSD fawn response in this episode. While fawning can definitely include flattery and disingenuous behavior that can damage relationships, it's a lot more than that. People who fawn due to PTSD learn to constantly or yeah, learn to consistently put others' needs ahead of their own, often to dangerous effect. Fawning can look like having sex when you don't want to. Um, and going to extreme lengths to please a rejecting or cruel caregiver in order to secure safety or basic care, forgetting yourself and your needs entirely because your brain has taught you that the only way to survive is to become what others want you to be. And there's, um, the person who kind of created the fawn response definition is Peter Walker. So I thought that was interesting. No. Yes, other people do fawning differently, yeah. but like it's not like you weren't I don't I'm not sure what the point is. I actually. think the point was to give yourself a break so that you're that people who use all of these tools are using them because they worked during a time when they needed them. And a lot of us are still using those tools, even though we don't need them anymore. And we're adults, we're in different situations than we were as kids when we, um, when we utilized those tools. And I just think a lot of it, and like a lot of my therapy is not utilizing the unnecessary tools anymore. 
And so yeah. I liked that. I felt like it was correcting me in a way that was like giving myself a little more kindness that oh, you're good. not an asshole. You're not, you know, I'm not being manipulative by telling you your hair looks good. What I'm doing is old, old, uh, old, um, an old way to make my life and myself feel better. And that's okay. Sure. <laughs> but I think I also I don't think there's anything wrong with you looking at that behavior because, you know, w as the person who received that behavior, it was, was it it was the kind of thing where that's I knew that's what you were doing yeah. because we were about to have a difficult conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, if that if that analysis makes you not do stuff like that anymore. So because you get to update yourself and know that you're now an, a 40 year old woman who is completely in charge of her own life, mm -hmm. then good. That's great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the analysis is going to whatever helps you do things less that make you feel bad is the point of totally. all of it. And the thing my therapist always talks about is how um, those voices inside of us, the coping mechanism voices mm -hmm. and the critics and the the ones that are trying to keep us safe by saying, shut up, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't know time has passed. Yeah. They have no concept of time. So when those feelings come up, they don't go. Uh, yeah, this is from 1983. <laughs> right. They're like they. Like we, I just talked to her, uh, my therapist about a thing that was similar where I was about to go do something that was making me really nervous and really stressed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I kept like making these excuses like, oh, it'll be fine. It, it won't work out and it'll be fine. And then she was like, the, the voice that's telling you that is trying to keep you safe and free from disappointment and you're tired of being disappointed. Yeah. So that's, a that's, that's protective, but. But what that voice doesn't understand is you're not going, you're not leaving your house and going back to 1995. Right. You're, and they don't understand that because time is not a part of the thinking in that. Right. And also that you're an adult now who can deal with disappointment and, and dis you understand disappointment's a part of life and it's not at the fucking end of the world. Like yeah. it maybe was when you were younger. Yeah. But those voices aren't aware of the other pieces of you that have grown and learned and changed. Yeah. So they just kind of like, it's like, it's like, you know, different ages of you running up to the mic and like taking, taking the spotlight. And then you're going, Oh, I guess this is how it is. And then you have to train yourself to have then the modern version of you go, thank you for that warning. Mm -hmm. I know that you're trying to be nice and protect me. I'm all good. This will be new. This will be different. Yeah. This isn't the same. We don't just keep things aren't always exactly the same pattern over and over. You're living a brand new life in all these, you know, with all these different combinations. I just think that like, sometimes I think people like to find a hole and go, here's what you're missing. Yeah. And I didn't feel like you were missing anything in that okay. conversation. You know? Yeah. I feel like I was like you going, you, I felt like being analytical is not the same as being mean to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being able to go, that didn't make me feel good. That's right. why you, it felt like why you wanted to tell me that. What, why did I do that? And it's like, yeah, yeah cause you're a human being. We all do weird shit when we feel threatened and when we feel like something might be taken away. Yeah. And like we, we will do it until the day we die. Cause that's how people are set up. Right. And everyone does it. It's not just you. And you know, what's really making me think of that is listening to again, this is actually happening where everybody thinks 
we're the ones that have had the horrible thing happen (sighs) or lived through the like extreme thing. That's why I think I'm so obsessed with people telling their stories like on that podcast or on Radio Rental, where I listen to that and go, oh, whoa, I have no idea what like... That's so funny because I like listening to it because so they have the, you know, the whole thing of like big T traumas and little T trauma, where it's like big T traumas is going to war. It's having a parent get ill. It's, you know, sexual assault. It's these events that are horrible and traumatic. And of course they are. And the little T traumas are the people who say, well, my life wasn't that bad. You know, like the little things that you can't point at and be like, that's, see, that's why I'm traumatic. I have trauma. It's the little things. And so I think for me, having little T traumas and not feeling worthy of them, listening to big T traumas and seeing that a lot of their reactions and a lot of the ways they cope with them are the same fucking way that people with little T traumas do. You know, like I don't have a big T trauma, but I'm fascinated with people who fucking survive big T traumas. Absolutely. And I would say that in our own individual lives, that your T is your size. It's not a, it's a thing. It's not a thing to compare to others because yes, that's true. There is a solace that we take in all banding together and going, have you been through shit and you feel fucked up about it? Me too. And it's not about, you know, it's like whose plane crash is the biggest. It doesn't. We don't have to do that to ourselves or each other. We can hear those stories and have that empathy to go, oh, I've been that place where whether it was because I got so many tickets that I knew I was my dad was going to kill me Mm -hmm. that now that this isn't that's not an example of trauma. But I'm trying to think of like when I had problems in life that I was like, I'm done. This is it. Or say when I flunked out of college. Yeah, I fucked up like 17 things in a row. I kept pushing it to the side and not taking care of it. And by the time the really bad thing happened, um, I was completely responsible for it, blamed myself for it and did the thing of, and this is the least of most people's worries. So it's not even a big deal, which I think is very damaging when you're going through shit. Yeah. Your shit is your shit. You can't, it's not less because other people's is more. It's, it's what it is. Yeah. You know, totally. I guess that was my, point not to dismiss obviously that person knows what they're talking about and just wanted to give like kindness yes. to you which is lovely yeah but then there's also that thing of like i don't know it's good to, i think it's good to be like to clean up your clean up the things you don't like doing to to chase those things and kind of go yeah and if i get into that moment again do i have to go to that place right right and give yourself like a little bit of space to go no i don't need to no one's going to threaten me. I'm not. There's not a truck rushing toward yeah, me. I'm, or yeah, you're safe. No, now. I'm safe. You're safe. Yes. Now, which I think and you can handle shit. I think is so much of therapy is like figuring it out, figuring out how you're safe now. Yeah. yeah. I think it's fascinating that parts of your brain don't understand time. Yeah. I think that is like the key to so many. I mean, time is a human construct. It's not like our brains were suddenly like 12 a.m. to 12 p.m. is now <laughs> yeah. a day. Like our brains didn't adapt. I mean, they adapted, but that's not, it's still not. Brain surgeons are like, can you shut up? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they don't know. No one knows anyone about the brain. That's what I learned when I got epilepsy. They're just like, sorry, unless we do brain surgery, we don't know what's wrong with you. It's like, thanks. 
Thanks, because we're worshiping you guys. We talk about, oh, yeah. I'm not a brain surgeon. You guys don't know anything. <laughs> and Here to prove it, we're going to give Stephen brain surgery uh, <laughs> right now on the Wait, podcast. No. <laughs> Stephen, <laughs> Stephen, <laughs> take <laughs> off your skull. <laughs> take off your skull. <laughs> take off your skull. That's our new segment, Secondhand Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> if it helps you great if you're confused throw it all away that's right that's what we do take what you want out of it and swallow the rest <laughs> wait so i i guess i asked you is in, in that fakey conversational way so that i could tell you what i've been watching great because that was a long conversation about the vow <laughs> now you go <laughs> oh but which is to say god if we could only watch the entire vow and then oh. talk about it for seven hours, because it is real good TV. HBO, get with the times. We want to binge. It, but it also makes me go, when I watch those things, I get worried. Like, I think, phew, it is a miracle I didn't join a cult. It's a miracle. <laughs> uh-huh. There's definitely a couple a, early years, early adult years where Georgia could have just later dayed into a Those searching cult. kind of like, I'm lost, someone tell me. And luckily yeah. it was like, oh, I'll just like the band this guy likes. Yeah. Instead of full on, like, I just signed up for the whole thing of taking classes you can't afford and then after the classes, like six weeks, then you have to take 10 more classes. It's like improv. <laughs> I it's think, like the, the cult of improv. I think I had a, I think luck, we're lucky that we have and had a pretty, uh, high, high level of skepticism and yes. especially in men. So like, you know, the men who would be the ones who would fucking indoctrinate you, we're just sure. like, get away from me with your fucking goatee or whatever. <laughs> Never trust a With goatee. Two, two hoop earrings and a goatee. Yeah. Goodbye. And a nose ring, too. You're like, what? <laughs> what? What? But then then if we're going to say that, then let's thank that inner critic mm -hmm. that was so mean to us, but was also mean to everybody else. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for not trusting people. You're right. It turns out <laughs> you were right not to trust me or him. Good job. Good job. 17 year old Karen who thought you knew it all. Um, turns out she did. It turns out she just did a lot of damage along the way. Sure. It's like, sure, you went and locked the front door. Thank you. But on the way, you chipped every wall. You knocked over every vase. She was testing herself. <sighs> you know, it's like you test your parents' love. Where you're like, do you still love me now? Do you still love me now? It's like you're doing that to yourself. Like, do you, do you still yeah. have a good life now? Do you still have a good life now? Yeah. It's like, are you going to start loving me now? How about now? <laughs> Could you love me now? Could you forgive me? Finally? <laughs> Uh, I stumbled upon a show and it was one of those ones where it started because the show I was binging ended. Mm. And so then it started and I was kind of not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. And it's called Be Foreigners. It's shot in Oslo. Before we played Oslo. Oslo. We played and it is, I'll just tell you this. So there's no spoilers. It's modern day Oslo and there's an event one night. All these lights go on in this ocean. Mm -hmm. And then people from the Stone Age, the <gasps> Viking era, and the, I guess, early 1800s appear oh, in the ocean. Karen, you're talking and they about get the, the new Bill and Ted. <laughs> <laughs> I think you misread the label. But I thought I thought the new Bill and Ted was called Be Foreigners, an adventure in the... <laughs> okay, wait. So they... I'm sorry. That was... So they all show up in the ocean. In the ocean. And they get rescued out. And then they're like, <gasps> these people were 
So this one guy's a cop, obviously in Oslo, and he shows up and it's like they rescue these people out of the ocean and they're just for a Stone Age family that's like screaming and panicking and they don't know where they are. And then it cuts to three years later where this event has happened over and over <gasps> again and all of modern day Oslo is filled with either Stone Age people, Vikings, or um like turn of the century 1800s people Whoa. who are just kind of trying to live and adapt That's it's cool fascinating it's really good and then a viking woman goes to she basically shows up and then ends up going to um school and becomes a police detective <laughs> so it's the it's the detective you meet in the beginning that's there for the first person uh -huh. and then three years later his new partner is this this actress is great is it a cartoon it, it sounds like it should be a no. cartoon it's, I just kept, I keep watching it and it's, it's really funny. Okay. It's really well written. Okay. There's a scene in the second episode where the Viking woman detective finds her friend who was a fee, another female Viking uh -huh. and they get, it, she, the friend doses her. Oh no. With mushrooms and they walk around the city like tripping out and screaming and they come upon a church and they start, they start screaming at what they call white Jesus. They go, there he is again, that white Jesus. <laughs> and they start saying like, we're shield, we're the shields women of Odin and we lasted longer than you. Whoa. They're yelling at you. It's real. And it's also for HBO Europe. So it's okay. like, an HBO series, but produced over there. It's great. It's great. I love it. That sounds awesome. In a similar, um, like theme, the, the show action or the, the movie, the documentary action park. <laughs> it's not at all like that. <laughs> I am dying for you to watch it. It's this fucking, it's this like, it's a documentary about this like 1980s home fucking spun New Jersey water park where people just died. All and yeah. got in terribly injured. And you guys, especially you younger people, were always like, it was so, no one gave a shit about children in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Please watch Action Park because it just, it's exactly, that's exactly what life was. You went and it's you might proof. get hurt or maimed because some adult did a thing poorly. It's your own fault. And you were uh, telling me about it the other night and my mind was blown because I've always heard people, friends of mine who grew up in New York and New Jersey mm -hmm. who know about, who t would tell me about Action Park. But I assumed it was just a real theme park that had a couple bad rides. <laughs> it, the, the whole thing was built by a guy who was not qualified, not an no. engineer. <laughs> he wasn't an engineer. The people who came up with the ideas and built them weren't engineers. <laughs> the people who manned the rides were these like stoner 15, 16 year old high school kids. <laughs> You know, super, super of the era. It's it's pretty. I rad. mean, but but I shouldn't be laughing because kids died, right? Did they die? I think so. I didn't get to that part yet. But yes, it's. Is it's, it a series or a one-off? It's a series. I mean, it's it's a one-off. Okay, I think it's on Netflix. Okay. It's great. Yeah, to watch it. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. It's like, oh yeah, that's you know how I always do like you know deaths at Disneyland or deaths at Lion Country Safari. Like this is this is right yeah. for that. I don't know how I never found it, but it's it's perfect. Yeah, it's so that's yeah I couldn't believe it because it it kind of made me think of in Big Bear in the summer they let people there. Have you ever seen those? They're like cement, um, like um. It almost is like what you would have at a water park, but they're made. What, what am I trying to say? Slide? Trails going down oh. a slide, but it's made of cement. Uh -huh. And you go down sitting on this thing uh -huh. that has a break, but it kind of doesn't work that well. <laughs> and that's like a, that's like a ride in Big Bear that you can do during the summer when there's no snow. That and it's familiar. basically just like 
And so in the winter, it's just road rash waiting to happen. (laughs) It's it's like, it's not a good idea. No, it's just like, hey, if you can't do tubing. Yeah, because it's summertime. Just shut down. Yeah. Not, that's not it's not a solution that's a pre- i mean it it makes sense <laughs> it, it's a better solution than just leaving I mean, them open um true. anything else i think we're good to go should we start it off yeah who's first this week me you are yeah, all right first. if you're like me you're always looking for a story to dive into whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve the key to getting hooked is the details i need rich visuals and intricate storylines and june's journey has that and more June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like, perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could, as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, made-in cookware. Made-in was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made-in. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of made-in products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. This one kind of ties into something we were talking about last week. And we can talk about, or uh, we can file this under another insane story that I had never heard of somehow. Okay. Maybe you have, this is the ayahuasca murders. No. Yes. Are you on ayahuasca right now? I just wanted to ask because I know that you're now an ayahuasca addict. So yeah, I actually I don't exist. You're on ayahuasca. This oh, whole no, time. you. Yeah. And you're by, the snake. Exactly. <laughs> and by the way, I don't want to do it anymore. Everyone messaged me all these different things. And I and after like 
fucking researching this. I think I'm good. Maybe ketamine. Let's see. We'll see where it goes. Um, <laughs> but we're still going to throw out uh, half-baked ideas yeah. on this podcast. And I'm still going to let people Psychedelic go for drugs. It. Yeah. Um, so I would like to thank uh, on Instagram, Katie underscore Daisy 419 is the one who told me about this insane story. And I got a lot of great info from there's a great article in Men's Journal by Matthew Bremner. There's a Guardian article by Dan Collins, CBC News article by Scott, uh, Scott Anderson, a Vice article by Allison Tierney. And then the Netflix show Unwell does a whole episode about ayahuasca and they lightly touch on this. And then God, just, I love that show. It's so good. It's it's real. If you haven't seen the Netflix series, did we already talk about it? Unwell. I, I hadn't seen it. I haven't seen it before, so I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I started it um, because someone was like, "You have to watch the one on the essential oils pyramid scheme." Yeah. I had no idea because I I left Facebook in like 2011. Oh my god! So I had no idea this kind these hijinks that were happening, dude. Uh, and it's it's such a bummer. The first season of the podcast, The Dream, is all about pyramid schemes, and it is mind-blowing so and then there's this like anarchist canadian podcast called from embers and they interview fucking anarchist canadians yeah it's rad support <laughs> support your local anarchist everyone sweet but just picture because canadians are so polite <laughs> yeah it's like they're polite just like, excuse me i disagree that's right i'm an anarchist i'm lighting this fireplace on fire now <laughs> now everyone cozy up <laughs> Well, I disagree virulently with you. And they interview um, this author named Kevin Tucker, who wrote this book about it. And I'll, I'll get to that later. So let's get in here. Uh, Wait, did you listen to the Anarchist podcast? Uh-huh. How was it? It's good. From Embers. Okay. Check it out. It's it's cool. It's like... From Embers. I love anarchists. They're like... It's like the same with Satanists. It's like just fucking... You're doing something different and you're challenging the status quo. Yes. And whether or not absolutely. I believe wholeheartedly in your message, I don't fucking care. It's awesome that you're actually trying you know, I feel like if there was ever a time where anarchists must feel really good about the decisions they've made and their and their kind of like thought <laughs> right. processes, it's 2020 yeah. where it's like, I told you, they yeah. we told you, they deserve a big I told you so for they sure. They really do. Yes. High five. Yeah. You were right about the government. You were right about the military. Capitalism. Fucking <laughs> All of it. Everything. Right. It's happening. So about an hour flight from Lima, Peru, and to the northeast of the Andes Mountains is the regional capital of Pucallpa. It's a bus. Sounds good. Huh? Yeah. Right. I'm going yeah. to try my best to get these pronunciations right. It's a bustling city with almost a quarter million residents, and it sits on the Ukalai River in the middle of the rainforest. The area is home to a number of indigenous peoples who have lived in the rainforest and thrived there for centuries and have a deep spiritual knowledge of plants and herbal remedies that the rainforest holds. Um, and they view the rainforest as this living thing deserving of respect. So ayahuasca is an example of this. It's a psychoactive brew made from the um, leaf of the chacaruna, and that contains the psychedelic substance DMT. So this is obviously a very basic description of it. If you want to learn more about it, there's a lot of smart people talking about it. I am not one of them. Mm -hmm. um, while this ingredient, so this ingredient is highly psychedelic. This is so interesting, but it gets rapidly broken down by the enzymes in our liver and gastrointestinal tract. So even if we take it, humans, 
nothing happens, even though it is psychedelic. So it wouldn't cause any psychedelic reactions, but fucking ancient Amazonian tribes without modern science were able to figure out that when it's combined with a totally different plant, they were able to figure this out. Uh, it's combined with something with MAO inhibitors. In this case, the stalks of the ayahuasca vine, it shuts mm. off those enzymes and allows the DMT to enter the system. And um, these two plants, they form a powerful psychedelic brew that affects the central nervous system, leading to an altered state of consciousness that can include hallucinations, out-of-body experiences, and euphoria. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that they figured this out because they're also the ones that made, you know, like Machu Picchu, where the stones are so close together, you can't slide a credit card in between. them. Right. So these people had I think we're getting dumber for sure. Yeah. There's a very good chance those people were like, if you like an IQ, if you like a nice high Keith Ranieri IQ. Yeah. I bet you back then they were way fucking smarter than we are. Now. Right. And even today. And it's, you know, the colonial fucking the colonialization of it was that the fucking uh, Europeans came over and were like, you're not using this incredible rainforest for anything. So we're going to remove the whole thing and use it for rubber plants and our bullshit, not understanding the deep connection to these plants that these people had had for centuries. And actually, there's a really good book. Okay, so it said that ayahuasca can help treat addiction and depression, post-traumatic stress and other mental disorders. But there's also studies that show it can exacerbate pre-existing mental illness, such as bipolar, especially if it's mixed with some some Western medicines. And I got a lot of messages from people that were like, if you're on SSRIs, you you should not take ayahuasca um, because it'll just fuck you up. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. The brew is used for spiritual and religious purposes by ancient Amazonian tribes, but since at least the 1960s, tourists have been coming from North America and Europe to participate in the traditional um, shaman-led ayahuasca ceremonies. And it takes years and years to become a shaman and so much study. It requires patience and a deep knowledge of plants and herbal remedies. It's often passed down through a family. Um, and the role of the shaman in the ayahuasca ceremony is imperative. And ayahuasca r- rituals were declared part of Peru's national heritage in 2008, which I think is interesting. And throughout the uh, ceremony, the shaman or curandero recites these beautiful healing chants. It's these like high, high pitched songs and chants that are just, you know, really, they're mind blowing. They're gorgeous. And um, it's said that through those chants uh, called the, those chants are called the Icaro and, and through those, they can channel medicinal spirits. So mm-hmm. the drug trip can last three to four hours and participants lie on mats in the dark and they fall into like a dreamlike state. And the whole time, you know, the shaman is there with the singing the chants and there's like this tobacco smoke that's blown throughout the room and they help people because they're vomiting and stuff like we talked about. Uh, And people who have taken ayahuasca say the visions can be intense and life altering, calling up past traumas buried deep in the subconscious. So over the past decade or so, hundreds of ayahuasca retreats have popped up promising to cure, you know, all kinds of things while providing this also a mind expanding um, experience. And many are run by North American and European expats who come to Peru um, wanting to open their own little um, retreats. And the most profitable retreats are in Iquitos, 
Peru, it's which is the largest jungle city, and it brings in nearly six million dollars annually. Whoa. It's just so many people are looking for an answer and for healing and for something to actually work for them. You know, totally. Yeah. The human experience is tough and you hope that there are answers out there and yeah, maybe there are. And they charge guests as much as $2,700 for a week's stay. So supporters of the drug claim that the ayahuasca boom has helped revive tribal communities and brought much needed income to poor indigenous communities. But many of the people in these communities see these ayahuasca tourists, as they're known, as just another wave of colonialists exploiting the rainforest and the indigenous people who live there for their gain. And they argue that their use of ayahuasca is cultural appropriation and profiteering. So one such ayahuasca tourist was a 37-year-old man from Vancouver Island, Canada, named Sebastian Woodruff. So Sebastian, okay, first of all, Fucking, he looks straight up like he could be a contestant on The Bachelor. Like, that's what he looks like. Oh, wow. He's got the, you know, chisel jaw, five o'clock shadow, dark eyes, just total Bachelor contestant. Okay. And he's a bit of an aimless free spirit. He's not interested in conventional life and the normal rat race shit, like consumerism and materialism. Uh, Would you call him a Canadian anarchist? (laughs) Could it be? One could possibly call them a Canadian anarchist. <laughs> what if it turns out all Canadians are anarchists and we just haven't Ooh. been paying attention? And they're like, don't come over here. So like, let's be really nice. So they think that we're not as... <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, so it seems like, it seems to me like he was a little lost in life. Kind of a drifter. You know, the like, I don't want to, I don't want to have a conventional job and a conventional life, but I'm also not really sure what to do with my life. I don't really have much of a purpose, it seems like. But he does live there. Yeah, right. Um, he does love nature. He likes climbing mountains, barefoot and getting lost in the woods and that sort of thing. He drifts between jobs. He does construction, tree planting, sea urchin diving. Sounds oh. awesome. Yeah. Um, and the guys on the workboat who work with him call him sea bass because he was distant and always wrapped up in his own world, which I didn't know sea bass were like that. (laughs) Sea bass are not the narcissists of the sea. You know how sea bass are. You know, it's me, me, me with those sea bass every time you catch them. (laughs) So he had a son in his early thirties, but the relationship with the kid's mom didn't work out, but they stayed friends. And Sebastian does have a big heart. It seems and would give you the shirt off his back. Everyone says, you know, everyone's friend. He teaches his he's still close with his son. He teaches his son how to swim in the valley rivers, which, by the way, let's move to Vancouver Island. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous up there. And uh, he teaches his son how to forage for mushrooms in the forest, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, he probably so he's would. like a na- he's a nature guy. He doesn't yeah. want a conventional life because he actually is really of he's of nature and he's yeah. like a he's that type of he's like an REI guy. This doesn't I, I don't mean this in a negative way. I just think it's a really easy way to describe someone that you will understand. 100% Burning Man guy. You know what I mean? Right. OK. Yeah. So in 2013, um, Sebastian's family stages an intervention for a relative struggling with alcoholism. And that experience is changes him. So he begins to think deeply about addiction and suffering and how the family unit is disrupted and alcoholism alcoholism and addictions are just are just a symptom of that and so how healing needs to happen through addiction in the family unit 
just to get over addiction. I'm not, I'm not explaining that well, but he discovers, um, ayahuasca when his brother-in-law tries some in a ceremony in British Columbia. And he learns that people who take ayahuasca have surreal visions and vomit violently, but the effect can be therapeutic and help treat severe depression along with other mental health issues like addiction. And he has this awakening that this is his purpose in life is to be a drug addiction counselor and to use, um, you know, medicine, na- natural medicine like ayahuasca to help people with addictions. Okay. And, um, he decides this is, his, this is his path and, um, he wants to help break people from their addictions. So in late 2013, he launches a crowdfunding campaign, which is, it says that in all the articles, but it's fucking Indiegogo. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Does that not exist anymore? I don't know. Oh. Um, he wants to raise money for his career change. And the fucking video is on YouTube. You can watch it. Or it's just oh. him casually talking about, you know, this, his theory on addiction and what he wants to do to change, help change things. He says he wants to go to Peru so he can study plant medicine and learn more about the healing properties of ayahuasca. And his campaign goal is to raise $10,000. Um, which, inc- which would include $6,800 for a he- the healing center he plans on opening. I don't know if it's there or in Canada that he wants to open. It seems like in Canada. And then $2,000 for travel and $600 for a Spanish translator. But he only ends up raising $2,000. Um, but either way, in September of 2014, he's not deterred. He travels to the Peruvian jungle city of uh, Iquitos. And it's the world's largest city that is not connected by a road. So you can't, the only way to get to the city is by plane or by taking a three or four day riverboat trip. Wow. Which I think is part of the experience is that you're so secluded and in the middle of this gorgeous setting. So he wants to go there to study under local shamans. On Facebook, he posts that he wants to quote, fix his mind. And while there, he meets Guillermo Arvalo, who is an ayahuascan shaman with more than 40 years experience, and he agrees to work with Sebastian. And over the next three years, Sebastian makes makes several trips to Peru and continues to take ayahuasca and ceremonies in his hometown as well. I think it's illegal in Canada and the US, but there's secret ceremonies. Or not secret, but there's like, there's ceremonies. Yeah, Yeah, private, yeah. So his friends and family say that he starts becoming distant and erratic. And in Facebook posts in 2016 and 2017, he says he's feeling low and lonely. And some people think maybe he's, yeah, it's because of a recent breakup he had. But others think that his issue is from his quest to become a healer. A friend close to him later tells reporters that he is essentially a good person, but he had a temper and he could be volatile and obsessive. Um, and he claims the ayahuasca changed his friend, changed Sebastian. He starts dieting constantly, which is a requirement for taking ayahuasca. You can't have any salt or sugar or fat. It's like part of it. He loses a lot of weight. And when his father uh, tells him to seek professional help, Sebastian just withdraws further. Um In September 2017, he contacts the owners of a fishing company he used to work for and asks for a loan of several thousand dollars, saying that his wallet and passport had been stolen. But it's definitely Mm -hmm. like a weird, a weird request. 
Um, and two weeks before Christmas in 2017, he heads back to Lima, Peru, and almost immediately starts running into issues. Um, he reports that his passport's stolen again. He's involved in a collision while driving a rental car. And he eventually finds a taxi driver who's able to take him to the colony of Victoria Gracia to meet with Guillermo Arivalo's grandmother, who's one of the most respected and renowned shamans in the Peruvian Amazon. So 81-year-old Olivia Arivalo Lamos is known as Ayoshan, which is grandmother. Um, she lives in the jungle hamlet of Victoria Gracia. So think, you know, wooden shacks, dirt roads. Um, and then the, the name, uh, Ayoshan is a term of affection and respect for this woman who knows hundreds and hundreds, like five, six hundred herbal remedies and is one of the last links to the dying tribal culture. She's a defender of the cultural and environmental rights of her people. She's just this incredible woman. Cool. Um, she's part of the Shipibo Kanibo people, which is an indigenous people along the Ucayali River, who are Peru's second largest indigenous Amazon tribe with over 35,000 members. And they're renowned for their healer led rituals that use, that utilize ayahuasca. One of the villagers says that Olivia had the power to calm storms and strong winds. And oh. if you look at her photo, she's just this beautiful, classic grandmotherly type with this wise, kind face and a smile. Her eyes are, you know, bright and beautiful. She's got the bright jewelry on, warm, just this warm presence, even through a picture. You know, right. and I, I would imagine that if you're in an ayahuasca ceremony led by this woman, you would just feel at peace. Well, yeah, if she's if she's studied that much stuff. Clearly, it's, yeah. you know, she possesses tons of knowledge and you'd you'd she knows what she's talking about. Exactly. You know, Olivia's work as a healer is legendary, both within the Shipibo, Conibo nation and internationally. She's attended to dozens of ayahuasca tourists who travel for more than 15 hours um, to cure themselves with her specifically. And so when Sebastian finally meets Olivia after having come to Peru for a couple of years to try to understand uh, ayahuasca and the medical properties it has, he asks her if she can cure him and through him cure his family back home from whatever he believes is their, you know, deep generational trauma. And she says she can if he has faith. And so Becky Linares is who's the mayor of Victoria Gracia says that Sebastian Woodruff would come by and he would ins insist that uh, Olivia Ar uh, Arivalo would take ayahuasca with him, but she refused to sometimes the healers would take it as well. And like, so they could experience it with you, but she hadn't taken it in years. So she just was like, that's not part of what I do. She's probably also like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the one that calls the shots. Right. Right. And so I think it seems like things devolved from there. It seems like uh, in the, up until this point, um, Sebastian Woodruff, as my, uh, overdramatic English teacher in high school would say was descending into madness at this point. Mm, okay. You know? Yeah. Um, and everything, every, his actions are becoming more and more erratic. And it seems so he develops a kind of obsession with the Arvalo family and becomes increasingly 
aggressive with the locals in that community. Mm. According to multiple accounts, he turns up in the village one night during a healing ceremony wanting to speak to um, Arivalo's son, Julian. He's reportedly carrying a club. He's turned away. He tries to sneak back in and hits a man guarding the ceremony, allegedly. Um, and some villagers chase after him and they take him to the police. And actually, um, Linares later says that the community took Sebastian to the police on three separate occasions. And of course, the local police have no record of this, but locals say it's because they didn't care if a white man is harassing natives. But if it had been the other way around, they would have given a shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. when Sebastian Woodrow fails to check in over Christmas and New Year's, his family and friends in British Columbia are worried. They're trying to like track him down in Peru. Um, and eventually he responds to them and says, I'm alive. So he leaves Peru in early January 2018 um, with his relationship with the Arivalo family strained. And a number of rumors are circulating that um, maybe Sebastian had given Julian Arivalo money for ayahuasca ceremonies that he never received or he'd been ripped off after giving Julian thousands of Peruvian, you know, dollars to buy land for a new retreat. But it's also like he was asking for loans from people he didn't have money. So that seems a little far fetched. Maybe he, you know, had these perceived injustices in his head. Right. That couldn't be couldn't be righted because they weren't true. You know, they right. were they're figment yeah. of his imagination. Yeah. If he went down there on borrowed money, then right. yeah, it still doesn't seem well who knows? Yeah. So the rumors are never confirmed, but prosecutors of the Ukayali provenance say that Julian allegedly owed Sebastian about $4,000, but we don't know if this is true or not. So Sebastian goes back to Canada. He lives in an RV, starts looking for a new job. It seems like he feels a little bit broken and disheartened. He posts on Facebook about how he feels like shit. Um, he says he's basically looking for a life on Facebook. Um, and in, on Facebook in February 2018 says, I miss my family and friends and feel like shit. I hope I'm not sick. Um, and in March, he writes a post about heading back to Peru to do some soul searching and fix his mind. Hmm. And his family and friends notice that he gets more and more closed off with each visit to Peru. They try to talk him out of going. He fucking won't listen. And Woodrow and his his first teacher, Guillermo Arivalo, says Sebastian reached out to him so they could meet up. But Guillermo was out of town. And he says that Sebastian told him that he's bipolar and needs help. So it, it does seem like maybe he had some undiagnosed issues or maybe they were exacerbated by the ayahuasca and right. he's losing touch with reality. So 13 days after arriving back in Peru, the now 41-year-old Sebastian writes, um, I'm feeling better day by day in Peru. So thankful. And he starts behaving more and more erratically. And on March 30th, he goes to a police station in Pucallpa and tells the officer that he's looking to buy a gun. Just randomly at, walks into the police station. At the police station. Yeah, yeah, I need that's to not go. good. No. That's not good. But um, he tells the officer that he's going into the jungle and wants protection from animals. And the officer actually agrees to sell him his nine millimeter pistol. Oh, no. Yeah. Which later they say is irregular, but not illegal. Because he files all the paperwork and stuff, even though he didn't have a gun license. Um, his next Facebook post says, not enjoying life, having a rough go, please send me prayers. So, whew, okay, ready for this. On the day, yeah. on the day of April 19th, 
2018, a teacher in the village school of Victoria Gracia hears three gunshots ring out. And he tells the children in the school to stay put, runs out to see what happened. And there he finds Olivia Arevalo laying on the ground outside of her hut, having been shot twice in the chest. Oh, God. Yeah. It's horrific. It's horrible. She cries out, they've killed me. They've killed me. And her daughter, Virginia, cradles her as she dies. Horrible. It's so horrible. Um, Someone heads out to get the police and it takes a while for them to arrive from the nearby city. And when they do arrive, they leave uh, Olivia Arevalo's body out in the dirt for hours as they investigate as her family and the grieving villagers stand around in shock. They find bullet cartridges a couple yards from the body and villagers tell the authorities that the killer is someone they know, a tourist from Canada they call the gringo. Mm. They tell authorities his name's Sebastian Woodruff and that they had taken him to the police station on three separate occasions. And um, this time they say he showed up on a motorcycle waving a gun looking for Olivia's son, Julian, and he had shot um, in the air once. But when Olivia came out instead, um, he shot her, but he's nowhere to be found. So soon after the shooting, there's a wanted poster made. It circulates online with Sebastian's photo. The message reads, this man, is, this is the man who killed our teacher, Olivia Arevalo. Um, and two days go by with no sign of Sebastian until a local media outlet receives a disturbing video. Oh, no. And the grainy footage, which I highly recommend you don't fucking look up. Even a screen grab is troubling. Is upsetting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, in the grainy footage, several male villagers are beating up a white man identified as Sebastian, and he's um, pleading, he's beaten up, he's bloody, and while onlookers stand by, his attackers drag him around in the dirt, and then one man takes a seatbelt and uses it to tie a noose around Sebastian's neck, and they drag him through the fucking streets as he's strangled. Um, and the violent video goes viral and becomes international news. Oh, God. How did no one needs that? No, no one needs that. That's horrible. <sighs> so investigators search Woodruff's rented room in the town. And among his things, they find sleeping pills and two other prescription drugs from Canada. One of those pres- prescriptions is an antipsychotic drug used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And the other is Klona- clonopin. Klonazepam. And another one is an anti-anxiety medication. Mm -hmm. Then authorities receive a tip about the whereabouts of Sebastian Woodruff. When they go back to Victoria Gracia, they find him buried in a shallow grave 700 yards from the village. His body had been wrapped in a blue sheet and he's covered in bruises and his clothes are coated in dirt and dried blood. And they also find the nine millimeter pistol that he had bought and a dismantled motorcycle. So back in Canada... Sebastian Woodruff's family, when they hear about this, are like, that is not the person we knew. He would never kill someone. They're adamant about it. And like, there's some rumors that like, maybe it was the po- the poachers in the rainforest that killed Olivia and all these stories. Um, but once investigators find gunshot residue on the sleeves and hand of Sebastian's sweatshirt um, and forensics match the empty cartridges found near Olivia Arevalo's body with the 
gun. Um, they, and, and there's also eyewitness accounts, you know, that it was him. Right. It's concluded yeah. that he is indeed the killer. Uh. And as for Sebastian's killers, police in uh, Pukalpa are still looking for the four men in connection with the lynching. Um, one of them was the mayor of that area at the time, and they're currently at large, reportedly hiding in the jungle. So meanwhile, in Canada, the local MP, um, Carlos Tabino, posts a tweet that calls the villagers savages and blames the Mm-mm. death on local shamans who, quote, turn ayahuasca into a business with foreigners. Uh-uh. That's not a good idea. Like, it's their fucking fault that someone came <sighs> to their village. What that's... And especially, like, the, it's just insult to injury of, like, he killed whatever the the context mm-hmm. he killed a holy person mm-hmm. he killed a a leader An and a innocent like a shaman and a and a giver and a teacher right. like that's she didn't ugh. provoke this attack you know she didn't invite this into her life he he's the aggressor he later apologizes but the the current Marion Linares tells reporters that the whole affair is racist. And she knows that the journalists covering the case and they're all the journalists descend on the town are only there because a white man died. The killing of indigenous people on the other hand is ignored every day. Like in December, 2016 indigenous Amazonian healer, Rosa Andrade, who was 67 was murdered by someone outside the community. That crime remains unsolved and the killing Mm. of environmental advocate, Edwin Chota in 2014 as well. Well, happened, but you know, there's no press coverage. Right. A week after Sebastian's death, Canada also issues an advisory warning travelers to exercise, quote, a high degree of caution throughout Peru and to avoid non essential travel completely due to terrorist and criminal activity. The double murder also casts a harsh spotlight on the unregulated world of ayahuasca tourism and some condemn the tribe for taking justice into its own hands some blame sebastian outright and some even assert that sebastian wasn't the murderer in the first place of olivia which i think is far-fetched yeah current mayor of victoria gracia becky linares says that the village never wanted the violence that sebastian brought they're usually a very tranquil community But in this moment, with the death of the village grandmother and last link to traditional ways, grief took over and they carried out their own justice is their their side of it. Um, Nellie Vasquez, Olivia's granddaughter, says that the murder has made her more suspicious of outsiders, even if Sebastian was an anomaly. Before he came, she says they all lived a peaceful life and didn't bother anyone. And now she feels haunted by the gringo. And despite the media attention the killings received, ayahuasca tourism has not decreased at all. And that is the murder of Olivia Arevalo, a.k.a. the Ayahuasca Murders. Wow. If you want to read more, the, the book I was talking about earlier, Kevin Tucker's book, The Cull of Personality, Ayahuasca, Colonialism, and the Death of a Healer. Um, it basically talks about the how the event is linked to colonialism and exploitation of indigenous peoples. It's a really interesting read. It's such a tragedy. It's a tragedy in every direction. But that that idea that she had all this kind of ancient knowledge mm-hmm. and that like that that can only be passed down. The fact that she met such a violent end, this peaceful, spiritual 
you know, knowledgeable person met right. such a violent end from a person who was suffering from his own mental issues is and the just, whole goal is like to go down there and to try to be healed and to be to say, can you please help me? I know that you heal people, you know, and that's that was that was the whole relationship. Yeah. And then that's that the way it turns out is that's a nightmare. Yeah. God, that's yeah. I've never heard of that one. <laughs> 2018. Yeah, I it mean, just happened. Yeah. That's very, it's also very good to think about in that way of like just accessing people's culture. Exactly. That way. You go, you're going into their culture. You're going into their lives and you're expecting to be, you know, expecting to continue to be treated the way you are in your culture and not respecting, you know, not respecting another culture, essentially. And maybe also he wasn't respecting the issues he actually had that it, he made up the way it was going to be solved. Right. And then when that didn't happen, he just kept kind of going back to the same source, which is like if you have, you know, maybe that mental illness and whatever else was going on with him needed to get treated a different way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. That's heavy. Why do I always remember lyrics to songs, Karen, that I haven't heard for years, but I always forget my email passwords? I know, right? It's like our brains only want us to retain useless information, but with 1Password, that problem's solved. 1Password is an award-winning password manager that's trusted by families and large-scale companies alike. If you're tired of being the person that everyone texts for a streaming login, hand that honor to 1Password. They let you share logins with people and with groups. With 1Password, you can securely switch between any device type or operating system. That means if you're a family or business that uses both Mac and PC, you won't have trouble sharing your private data. Don't let the name fool you. 1Password does more than just store passwords. It can autofill usernames, payment details, and personal information. And they notify you about potential data breaches. For business operations, 1Password has a dedicated support team that will integrate its security tools into your existing workflow. 1Password saves everyone time. And we all know that time saved equals money saved saved. Your accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. 1Password was named Wirecutter's best password manager and companies like Salesforce and IBM trust 1Password to secure their most sensitive information. So you can too. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial at 1Password.com slash MFM. That's two free weeks at 1 as in the number 1 Password.com slash MFM. 1Password.com slash MFM. Goodbye. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com slash 
slash murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Okay, so the story I'm going to do this week has an equal amount of uh, pronunciation challenges because it's also um, international. Uh, I'm going to do the story of the Beast of Gévaudan. Okay. Okay. So here's what happened. There's a website that I love to read called Dangerous Minds. Mm. I've been reading it for years. I don't know if you've ever Mm -hmm. gone onto it, but it's a bunch of super cool writers and it's mostly about music. Um, but then it goes off into these kind of like fascinating, um, cultural kind of mondo. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen this video? Have you ever seen this? Whatever. Sometimes they'll just have a really good one time on there. My favorite thing, I think they had the like 1981, um, Christmas like employee thank you reel for some news station in like Connecticut so it just was the camera going around and it would be like the guy in the the guy that was in like the in the editing bay waving Merry Christmas (laughs) with like their name underneath like stuff like that on there it's just like yeah. yeah, people with it's it's a bunch of people with good taste writing about things that you, you would find interesting. Love it. So, um, so uh, their contributor, uh, someone named Cherry Bomb, is the person who wrote this article that I first found. So I sent it to Jay, and I'm like, I have to do this next week. Yeah. Um, but other sources we used are Smith SmithsonianMagazine.com. Um, there's a website called HowAboutThat.site. <laughs> Um, (laughs) that I think goes, um, under the all thing, all that's interesting website. Mm -hmm. Of course, the great website at atlasobscura.com. And then, of course, Wikipedia and history.com. Um, and also we did a search of the, uh, MFM Gmail inbox. And this story was suggested by a listener named Genevieve B way back in 2018. Girl. Thank you. Thank you, Genevieve. Um, okay. So. This is fascinating to me, and I never, I've never heard of this, but between the years of 1520 and 1630, the people of France lived through what's now known as the French werewolf epidemic. What? Uh huh. So over 30,000 people were accused of being werewolves in that 110 year span of time. 30,000 people oh were arrested, tortured, and then, of course, confessed to making deals with the devil for various reasons. Most of them were to protect their flock or their or their herd. Um, Then the devil would give them oftentimes it was a a, a magical ointment. Sometimes it was a magical belt. um, And that would turn them into werewolves. Um, And then they would murder and partially eat uh, unsuspecting passersby. Wow. So that was actually a big chunk of time in French history where that sure you know, is. kind of sounds it's similar to like the witch trials of Europe or the witch trials right. of Salem. So this came and went. And then 130 years later, after it all settles down and seems to be over, Beast of Gévaudan kicks up. So oh here's what happened in April of uh, 1764. A young woman is tending to her herd of cattle in the Mic. Mequois Forest. I mean, this is going to be a fucking be great. pronunciation disaster. And um, this is near the small town of Long Longagne. <laughs> 
uh, in the south central region Own of Gévaudan, France. Yeah. So, so as, she, as she's out there, you know, ten. You see, the the thing that I love about this story is that it happens nearby and in the forest. And mm-hmm. as we know, it's a dangerous place. Sure. We've talked about it a lot, but it's fascinating to me. Like, uh, so. She's she's got her cattle that are, I guess, grazing in the forest Mm -hmm. and um, suddenly a strange four legged creature about the size of a calf with black and red hair, long black and red hair, a long tail and a very wide mouth appears. And before the woman can figure out what's going on, it lunges forward and attacks her. Uh, She's trying to get free that the creature's too strong. Luckily, the women's the woman's cattle comes to her aid and they charge at this beast and, mm-hmm. and, um, make it run away. Was she, which, was she perhaps eating those forest mushrooms at the time? I mean, it's her and those cattle. Right. I read that story and I was just like, I, I grew up around cows. Yeah. They don't charge <laughs> big threatening animals they as protecting a group. Your ass. Yeah. They're <laughs> not like, we, we must save Karen. The, this was long ago, sure, you know, sure. maybe, maybe they used to be quite brave. <laughs> okay. So she's obviously shaken. She runs back to her family. She tells them all about this happening. And what she says is she was just, she was attacked by something quote, like a wolf, but not a wolf. So then two months later on June 30th, 1764, a 14 year old shepherdess named Jean Boulet tends to her flock of sheep in the same re- region. And this mysterious beast appears again. Um, and in the same way, it lunges at Jean, but that she and her sheep are no match for it. And she is the first known fatality of the strange beast of Je Voudin. Mm-hmm. So, I'll give you a little historical context of what's going on in France at the time. Okay. So um, France has been fighting over land in the New World uh, for years. And so that's England, if that's us, yeah. Okay, that's us. I mean, it wasn't me. My people weren't here. But anyway. <laughs> mine, um, mine weren't either. Yeah, we were, <laughs> no. we were still in Europe, yeah. wandering around Europe. So England officially declares war on France over that uh, land in 1756. This will eventually become the Seven Years' War um, between England, France, and Spain. It lasts from 1756 to 1763, which is approximately seven years. That's right. Seven years. <laughs> <clears throat> I love talking about this shit. I've no, I'm like, oh, I've heard of that. I've, I think I've heard of that. Oh, that makes sense now. No idea. So at the end of this war, France signs the Treaty of Paris um, with England and Spain. On February 10th, 1763, and they lose Canada and Louisiana to the British. Bummer. Um, obviously, they're all colonizers. It was the Native American people's land. Yeah. We won't claim land that's already. Yeah. They're having, they're having wars. Anyway, so at this point, national morale in France is very low. So this about a year later, when the news about a mysterious man-eating beast in Gévaudan travels across Europe, it gives people something new to focus on and rally around, um, especially as the number of attacks begin to climb. So over the course of the next few months, this beast strikes dozens of times, injuring some, killing others. Um, and while there's some men attacked, the majority of the victims are women and children and there's so it's so funny there's so many stories of children being uh 
shepherds essentially okay all the way all through this time so like everyone had a job yeah it was one of those eras so the beast has a pattern of attacking the throat or head and decapitating the victims mm. um and partially eating many of its victims which is not normal for wolves or dogs wild dogs or any other wild animal known to live in that region of france everybody here in frank yelling in the background he's like i'd okay. do it <laughs> I eat, eat your head. So as opposed to um, a normal like wolf attack, suddenly people, they're finding, you know, people decapitated. Yikes. Local soldiers who have returned from the Seven Years War with, quote, wounded masculinity from this defeat, they see this beast as an opportunity to reclaim their honor. Right. So men. One of these local infantrymen is Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel. The fact that Josh Duhamel, the great American actor, has not done a a biopic of clearly his relatives in France who participating in this is a huge mistake. So, Josh, get in touch because we we need to make this movie a project. (laughs) So Duhamel uh, teams up with a regional government delegate named Etienne Lafont, and they organize, it's said as many as 30,000 men to hunt down this beast. Mm. So on October 8th, 1764, another victim is mauled. Though Duhamel Lafont and their men couldn't save the victim, they are able to trail the beast to a forest at Chateau Le Bon, where it's seen stalking yet another herdsman. Um, so Duhamel's team follows the beast into the forest where they corner it and they manage to coax it out into the open. Then they use their muskets and open fire on the beast it falls to the ground, but to everyone's horror, it then rises back up to its feet and runs away. So when word of this gets out, the story of the beast takes on a supernatural quality. And by December of 1764, the frequency of attacks leads some people to believe there might actually be more than one of these oh, creatures. Shit. Yeah. So all the papers in the local villages latch onto these stories and these theories, and they start churning out these sensational reports, circulating them all over France, making everyone equal parts fascinated, curious, and afraid. One of the more popular stories is, and this is my favorite, um, a 10-year-old boy named Jacques Portefeuille. On January 12th, 1765, Jacques and seven of his friends, so five boys, it's five boys, two girls, ranging from ages eight to 12. Mm -hmm. They're out in a meadow tending to cattle, and they're also playing kind of like war with big sticks. When the (laughs) Yeah. Um, So... They're doing that. It's, you're right. The tranquil, pleasant. Mm. There's little pieces of, um, what are those things you blow on called? They're in the air. The daff- dandelions. Dandelions. <laughs> yes. Dandelions <laughs> filling the air. Oh Suddenly, boom. Here's this, here's this beast. Here's this werewolf. It lunges at the kids. But the kids, led by young Jacques, Jacques, beat it back with sticks and successfully scared away. Man, nothing like a fucking gang of kids with sticks to scare yeah, a they're monster just like, away. <laughs> a literal monster. <laughs> King Louis XV is so taken by this story that he awards Jacques and all of the children who were with him 300 livres apiece for their bravery. Mm. And he also gives Jacques a free education paid for by the crown. Yeah. Um, Jay looked it up uh, according to the website historicalstatistics.org uh-huh. uh, and their currency converter 300 livres in 1764 France is worth about 
2,500 euros in 2015. Damn. So that's a nice chunk of money. Definitely. So on August 11th, 1765, 19-year-old Marie-Jean Vallée and her sister, they're crossing the river Dege on their walk home when she turns around to find the beast behind them. But Marie-Jean is armed with a bayonet that's attached to a wooden pole. So as the beast lunges toward them, she stabs it right in the chest. Somehow, it doesn't kill it, and the beast runs off wounded. From then on, Marie-Jean is dubbed the Amazon, or the Maiden of Jadouvant, for saving herself and her sister. And centuries later, in 1995, artist Philippe Kaplan, I think, or Kaplan, commemorates Marie-Jean with a statue which still stands in a churchyard in Auvers, France. Cool. <laughs> France, I said. France. <laughs> Have you ever seen... Have you seen Better Off Dead, the movie, yeah, the John yeah. Cusack movie, yeah, Better yeah. Off Dead, when the mom, they have their French exchange students, so the mom goes, French bread, French <laughs> dressing, and Peru, and she's holding a bottle of Perrier, <laughs> Peru. Okay, so these attacks keep coming, and though the exact numbers aren't known, it's estimated that by early 1765, there have been between 30 and 60 deaths. Wow. Yeah. So Duhamel and Lafont hear more and more stories of local peasants and townspeople defending themselves from the beast. Their egos are bruised. So they decide to ramp up the efforts to catch and kill this beast. So they organize military style formations and strategies. They set poison bait traps. They even dress up like peasant women to try to lure the beast to attack them. Yeah. And rewards for the beast's head are set and gradually increased until they equal a full year's salary for the average worker. Oh, my God. Still, none of that leads to any results. So the repeated failures of Duhamel, Lafont, and the local men of Gévaudan only add to the who can slay this dragon narrative. So in February of 765, a father and son hunting team from Normandy named the Denevals uh, announced that they're going to travel to Jeduvan to defeat the beats, beast themselves. Um, they, they claim that they've killed more than 1200 wolves between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they convince everyone they're the men for the job. But Lafont warns them that this creature is quote, much bigger than a wolf. And Josh Dumel says, you will undoubtedly think like I do that this is a monster, the father of which is a lion. Mm. So. What its mother was remains to be seen. Mm. So this father and son team scour the area for the beast and try their hand at killing it, but they can't do either. And by the spring of 1765, they're super embarrassed because their big pronunciation of how they were going to get it done uh, doesn't work. Yeah. They give up, throw in the towel, they go back to Normandy. <laughs> As the Denevals give up, King Louis XV decides it's time to send in his own personal gun bearer, a man named Francois Antoine, to hunt the beast. Now, Francois, he decides to bring his nephew to help him out since he's 71 years old. And <laughs> you know. 71 in 1765 is 112 in today's... <laughs> Anyway, okay, so Francois, his nephew, and a few other men roam Jeduvan's forests until they finally find a large creature that appears to be the beast. They successfully shoot and kill it on September 20th, 1765. And then they bring the beast's corpse to the court at Versailles. An autopsy is conducted. The inspecting doctor finds human remains inside the beast's stomach. So then they, they say this confirms that they have killed the beast. 
The body's stuffed. It's put on display at Versailles. Antoine receives a huge reward from the king, and he's celebrated not only by the villagers of Jeux de Vent, but by all of France. Shit. But then, two months later in December, there's another attack. Uh-uh. But since the king had already made this big display of saying that the beast had already been killed, he refuses to acknowledge that the that the attacks and murders have started again. That's the best so step that, is refuse to acknowledge it. Yeah, I feel like we've heard a couple stories like that where mm-hmm. uh, the local law enforcement thinks they've solved it and they want to have solved it. Mm-hmm. So then when the fact comes up that it's not been solved, refuse, they go refuse. Uh, yeah, refuse. No, can't do it. So without any further assistance from the crown, the people of Jeux du Vent continue to be attacked for the next 18 months. And during this time, it's estimated that another 30 to 35 people die at the clutches of the mysterious wolf-like creature. A witness to one of these attacks um, that happened in that period of time reports that the beast, quote, had a shape contrary to nature. So there's something weird about this animal. Alien. uh, Or thing. That's a lot of people killed. Yes, it's a ton. A ton. It's nuts. Okay, so the locals are now furious. They decide to take matters into their own hands. So instead of relying on these military people or the royals... They know the landscape better than anyone else. They know these forests and they have the most to lose. So they organize their own plan to kill the beast once and for all. So on June 19th, 1767, a rich nobleman, the Marquis d'Aperche, perhaps, probably not, (laughs) organizes a hunt with all the townspeople. And one of these townspeople is a local farmer named Jean Chastel. So Chastel was known around town for leading the hunts that the king's gun bearer, Antoine, organized. Mm-hmm. Remember those guys? The yeah, guy yeah. and his uh, nephew? Oh, right. But after Jean Chastel uh, led, accidentally led everybody into a bog, Antoine had him thrown in jail. Oh, man. Yeah. Whoops. So now he's he got out of jail. He's back and better than ever. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this for a fact, but I bet you about 300 livres that he's super pissed and has something to prove. <laughs> so here's a quote from how about that dot site. It says, quote, Chastel was armed with a double barreled shotgun. His ammunition, they say he used silver balls, silver balls, <laughs> and he had them blessed in advance of the hunt. Okay. End quote. So this hunting party goes, they they search the forest, they search the land, they finally come upon the beast. Jean Chastel steps out, shoots his shot, and mm. quote, Chastel's fire broke the beast's shoulder and ripped out its throat. Yay. The hunter then proclaimed the doom of the dread beast of Je Duvant, quote, beast, you shall hunt no more. Okay. Overdramatic. Yeah. This is a little corny. We'll change that for Josh. Don't worry. We'll change that for the movie. <laughs> when all is said and done in a three year span, there are an estimated 213 total attacks. Holy shit. With, with 49 injuries and 113 deaths. Oh my God. Of these victims, 98 of them were partially eaten. Dude. So 
at the end of all of that, the question still remains, what was yeah. the beast of Gévaudan? Some like to believe in the more fantastical theories that it was a werewolf. It's it's kind of a historical thing mm-hmm. in this in France. And um, so it's easier to believe maybe um, because and also because the decapitations were so common. And that's not what most animals, dogs, anyone yeah. do. It's it's easier to believe. Uh, other thing that people believe is that it's a human serial killer somehow disguised as mm. this monster, because they do say, you know, the um, they say it walked on two legs, um, that it had the ability to rise up and walk on its back legs, that it that it was shaped and it was wide chested, it was flat headed, its mouth was bigger than any animal that was a dog or a wolf. Yeah, he it was a who wore like a costume to disguise himself. Yes, could you Ooh. like? And also, they said it was bl- the hair was long and black, and just like the the actual pelt of the animal looked really weird. It didn't look like a, any wolf they'd seen before. Like some dude skinned a wolf and put his body on himself. Ew. Well, also. There were victims. Did I say this one? There were also victims who said that they saw buttons on the beast's <gasps> belly. Dude, I love I love that theory that it's some fucking psycho that's dressed up like a wolf. I'd rather run into a werewolf than a guy wearing a wolf's carcass. Yes yeah. or no? Not. Uh, you know, I think there's pluses on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think I'm never leaving my house again. You know, everything's possible and I'm scared all the time. Okay. Modern scientists and historian have guessed that the creature or multiple creatures could have been a Eurasian wolf, a hyena, a variation of a lion. There's some are saying maybe like soldiers that went off to war smuggled back exotic animals, Mm. you know, from foreign lands. Mm -hmm. It could have been a dog wolf hybrid. Some there are theories that it was a prehistoric animal yeah. holdover that managed to survive into the 18th century, and that's how which... Encino Man was created. <laughs> that's, they use that and they base that off Encino Man. That's a deep cut. This is the Encino Man prequel. <laughs> we are making this movie, Josh. References to uh, 1980s <laughs> movies. The most likely answer, according to historian and author J.M. Smith, who wrote the book Monsters of the Gévaudan, The Making of a Beast, is that they were, in fact, large wolves. No, dude. He's like, yeah. let me pick the most boring thing. And then <laughs> it's it's the old Occam's razor. That's no fun and right. goes against everything we love in podcasting. I want to believe that. He basically said Gévaudan had a serious wolf infestation, and that's what was taking place. But no matter what the explanation is, in this three-year period, there was carnage and terror that left its mark on south-central France forever. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of the beast of Gévaudan. Also, if you want to see... So, J.M. Smith's book, uh, Monsters of the Gévaudan, um, you should definitely read that if this is interesting to you. There's also a 2001 movie called Brotherhood of the Wolf. Mm-hmm. It has 73% on Rotten Tomatoes. Nice. And it's all... A, it's a French movie. It's all about this story. Dude. So... You know, if you want it, if you want it, it's all there for you. Don't trust me. No, it's Italian. Oh, (laughs) clapping is Italian. No, bravo. Is bravo French? I think bravo is French. Well, bravo to you. That was great. That was great. 
That Thank was like, you. I know. We need more like that. There's all kinds of horrible things to talk about in this world. <laughs> so truly, you know, guys, we, we can still, go back and we forth. We still need your suggestions. Don't stop. Won't stop. <laughs> you know, not till you get enough. Exactly. So That's keep for suggesting sure. them to us because it's yeah. It turns out I just love that. I was just going to say, I just love that I saw that article and got all excited. And then when I asked Jay to do the search, Genevieve had been talking about it years oh, yeah. before. Yeah. So I love it. Genevieve's like, what's up? Ding dong. Hey, talk about this. And at the end of her email, she said, and I'm not even French. <laughs> you don't have to be French to listen to my favorite murder. You don't, but it sure does help. <laughs> Um, great job. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Should we do a couple? Let's do it. Uh, fucking hoorays. Cool. Want to go first? Sure. Okay. Let's see. This is from, this is from Emily Fay. Um, it says, my fucking hooray is that my aunt is beating pancreatic cancer. Oh my God. She was, yeah, she was diagnosed mid February with pancreatic cancer almost exactly two years to the day that my grandmother, her mother, lost her battle with the same disease. As many know, pancreatic cancer is one of the hardest cancers to treat and beat because most of the time it's caught too late. It started as awful news and the doctors didn't think chemo would help much. Well, on July 29th, 2020, we got the news that the tumor has shrunk considerably and on August 28th she had surgery to remove all of the cancer. She's doing great and is ready to come home. Her oncologist doesn't think additional rounds of radiation will be or chemo will be needed. We're so excited to see what the rest of her life has to offer. Fuck you cancer. You're losing this battle. Oh, that's so Emily Faye. Congratulations. Oh that's so beautiful. My aunt Kathleen Castro, who was one of the greatest people, died of pancreatic cancer. We lost her so quickly. <sighs> it was so hard. It, this really is the most fucked cancer. So I'm so happy for you, Emily, because that is, uh, it was amazing. And it's going to give a lot of other people so much hope to hear that. That's incredible. That's incredible. really cool. The people who are going through normal things like cancer at this time. I just I can't even imagine the extra. Yeah. All right. So this one is from uh, Pippi and Shirley on Instagram. I have finally got a spectacular fucking hooray over the past two years. My kids and I have been navigating escaping from my ex being homeless for months and legal battles trying to get child support. I took a huge financial gamble and went for my graduate degree. I just couldn't get a job that paid enough that I could provide us with a decent life. And so close to the end of my program, the job I did have, I was laid off from in March thanks to COVID. I graduated this month with my master's of social work and I got an amazing job within two weeks. I start in September. I've been trying to get all my life ducks in a row and my career duck is no longer floundering in the middle of the river about to get eaten by a carp. After years in an abusive relationship, I thought my life would never be what I want it to be. Now I have it. Uh, thank you for being the not actual my friends who have helped me feel not alone. Thanks to the Murderino community. I'm absolutely buying a pair of fuck you. I'm divorced sweatpants with my first paycheck. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. And it's paycheck with a Q-U-E. So they're so they're Canadian, Canadian or British. Montreal. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's a huge risk. And so that's huge. so cool. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you for sharing those. Um, there's still good news out there. Yeah. So if you have any, please send it to us. You can do with fan call. They know. 
You do Gmail. Yeah. You do Twitter. We're Instagram. honored that you share these wins with us. We feel like the keeper of this really cool uh, community and we're yeah, we're stoked to be part yeah. of it. I feel like the comptroller of this community. <laughs> we could just we could pick our titles. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Um, stay strong, stay sexy, and don't get murdered. Goodbye. Bye. Okay. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie?